Um, actually, be before, I, be before I begin, um, I want to explain a couple of things to you. In the last few months, I've been going through Ephesians. Um, we were preaching it on the liturgical side, uh, and Andrew asked me to uh, find the readings. Uh, in the traditional, you've got four readings. Uh, and to find the hymns that would go along with the relevant passages, uh, and to, to think about what the series would look like. Um, I've already preached this passage before. Uh, last year, uh, as I was finishing up my, uh, my studies, uh, Ephesians was the book that I spent the most time in. And so I've done a very significant amount of reading, of academic work in this text, uh, and when I started, I, I assumed actually it would be, uh, it would be very easy. Um, that Ephesians is one of those books which is really very clear. Um, it's essentially this passage is about why Methodism is wrong. Um, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And uh, it's, it's the classic proof text for Calvinism and, and so forth. Um, but the more I've read Ephesians and the more I've had to think about it and the more I've had to prepare to preach it, um, the more acutely aware I am that I really don't understand it. Uh, and that understanding is not fundamentally intellectual. It's not that I, I don't grasp the content, and it's, it's not that I don't understand the broad themes or, or how the content fits together. But essentially, the issue I found was an ethical one. Uh, that the more I read it, the more that I was aware that the, the rich truths uh, that that Paul is proclaiming, truths that tell us what the universe is about and who God is, weren't resonating with my heart. Uh, and the chief reason for that is because I'm evil. Um, and as I was preparing to preach, I was thinking, how do I communicate to you the abundant glory of God, that what he has accomplished in Christ uh, what he has ordained from eternity past unto eternity future. And, and I try to construct sermons which have got some rhetorical force or, or value uh, behind it to make it easier to listen to. But I found it harder and harder. And the, the reason, I think, is, is the same one. That fundamentally, the problem that we have, and the problem I have as a preacher, in engaging our hearts together, that we might receive God's truth, Again, it's not intellectual, it's, and it's not rhetorical. It, it is because of our corrupt and fallen nature. Uh, that is, that, that we can read all of these things that, that God is saying, and we will struggle to understand them, or at least we'll struggle to, to have them so penetrate our heart that we would resound with the praise that Paul has. And I think this is, this is quite clear, because if you, if you just look at verses 15 to 22 very quickly. After outlining that God has given to us, the church, every spiritual blessing in Christ, that, that God has not withheld anything from us, God has given us everything in Christ, he then prays in verse 17 that God, who is the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. In other words, Paul, having just said that God has given us everything, 
prays that God would give us something else, and that something is the wisdom and the revelation to know Christ. In other words, to know everything that God has given us in Christ and all of these spiritual blessings. That the fact that that prayer immediately follows and to Paul's mind is necessary, I think is profoundly important as we begin looking at this passage today and as we begin studying Ephesians. Our very nature is that we are blind to God's truth, that we are insensible to what he has to say, that our hearts do not resonate to sing his glory and his praise, and that our lives can be so easily unaffected by the majesty of what God says. And, and that fundamentally is wicked. And so, brothers and sisters, as we start, I, I want to... I want to encourage us as, as God's people to think about the nature of our hearts and the profound need to pray as we think about this passage, that God would, as Paul prayed, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Christ and through seeing Christ rejoice and glorify the greatness of our God. And so therefore, uh, after a very lengthy pre-sermon introduction, I'm going to pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, Father of glory, we acknowledge that according to our sinful nature, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the, the course of this world, children of your wrath, blind to your truth, and willfully sinning against you, that our hearts were hard and stony, they were dead, and that though you have made us alive in Christ, that we are still foolish in many ways, that we do not heed your word, and we do not give it the reverence that it deserves, that we can acknowledge things in our mind, and we can understand the concept, but yet our heart remains unchanged and unmoved before you. But you are the God of glory, and you have manifested yourself in Jesus Christ, that through him you have worked great wonders, showing forth your grace to us, the church, and through the church, proclaiming your manifold wisdom to everyone in heaven and on earth. And we pray that you would not leave our hearts as insensible to your truth. We ask that you would shape us by your spirit to see what you have accomplished in Christ, to acknowledge who you are, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might truly know, worship, and glorify you as our loving, heavenly, and gracious Father. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, um, let's just go straight into the text. I, I'm going to focus in particular in verses 3 to 10 today. Uh, and it's important for you to understand that verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence. Uh, it's a sentence that is 202 words long. Uh, it's one continuous thought, which makes it sometimes quite difficult to, to get a handle on. But I think the essential purpose is quite simple. Uh, Paul is praising God. He is exalting and magnifying God. And we see it there in verse 3. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He wants to, to bless, to praise God. And the way in which he does so, the way Paul praises him, the way he blesses him, is to declare God's deeds. It's actually just like David did in our Old Testament reading, isn't it? David blessed God and he proclaimed what God had done. However, for Paul in this passage, the, the chief deed, the, the principal act which evokes Paul's praise is God's rich, lavish, and unrestrained blessing upon us, the church. Have a look again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In other words, Paul is praising the generosity of God, his abundant liberality, his, his plentiful kindness towards us. Or as we would put it, he is proclaiming God's grace. That is, as, as the passage moves from eternity past and, and God's counsel in eternity past, the, before the foundation of the world, and as he moves into eternity future and the inheritance of the saints, there is one consistent theme. Grace, grace, grace. God is, by his nature, a gracious God. And Paul, by declaring the acts, the acts of God which are gracious, he is exhorting us to praise the God who is, by his very nature, he himself, a gracious God. Now, I think that last point is really very important, uh, so I'm going to repeat it quickly. The acts of God, his deeds, reveal who he is. Uh, they demonstrate, if you like, his, his godness, uh, what he is like, his character, his nature. And so Paul might say in, in Romans 1 that, that creation reveals the divine power of God. Uh, we might think of Psalm 19, that the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the, 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 the sky proclaims the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech that, that the very stars and all of creation reveals to us something not merely about what God has done, but who he is. And that is important, because although we need God's acts, his revelation, uh, to, to worship him, that we only know him through what he has done. It is important to recognize that we don't worship God merely for what he has done, but fundamentally we worship him for who he is. And so the purpose of our passage is, is not just to know that God has adopted us or redeemed us or forgiven us, as important as that is. It's not just to know God's acts, nor is it really just about us that, that we may be uh, thankful in the knowledge that God has blessed us. But I think instead that it is through these acts that God has revealed who he is. And he is of himself intrinsically a gracious God. And he is glorious in that gracious character. And that is why he repeats in verse 6. In verse 12 and in verse 14, 
that the revelation of the gracious acts of God are unto the praise of his glorious grace. So as we read these verses, as we reflect on what God has done, Paul wants us, along with him, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is, by nature, glorious, a gracious God. So that's my, that's my first point, Paul's big point. The, the next is we need to look at his acts, God's gracious acts. Uh, we see in the text in verse 4 that God chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. In verse 7, he has redeemed us through the blood of Christ. And again, he has forgiven us. But I think the first point that we must look at before we look at his election, his adoption, his redemption, his forgiveness, is to acknowledge that God has blessed us. He has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us. And that is important, and that fact alone magnifies God's glorious grace, because we, as I said at the start, are evil. We are fundamentally wicked. Paul makes this clear in the following chapter that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to evil. We were willfully carrying out wickedness. We were children not of God's adoption, but of his anger. We were, as the Reformed Confessions might say, in an estate of sin and misery. That concerning our sin, we had guilt before God, that, that we bore real guilt. Uh, God holds us as, as legally culpable for the ways in which we violate his law. We, we lack original righteousness. That, that means that we, we don't meet the standard that God requires of our lives, but, but we are basically deficient in what he requires ethically. And lastly, that, that we were corrupt in our desires. This is what we might call the depravity of our nature, that, that our heart's motivation, what we want, our affection, was permanently inclined towards evil. And that we lacked any capacity to change that. Now I want to, to think about one example that would seem really quite small, but it, it, it demonstrates the the, the terrible state of our condition. So in my home, um, I think those of you who are married will, will sort of realize this, that, that marriage works as a symbiotic relationship, right? You, you have to, um, to have a healthy marriage, you, you need to, to, to love your wife and the wife must love the husband, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. But very often what I find is that, that my love is, is stained by complete selfishness. So I would say I will try to sacrifice things for my wife, my, my time, my energy, um, that I would uh, do things for her that are costly. And I would lord and magnify myself in, in the fact that I do those things. When my wife isn't 
completely kind and gracious to me on occasion, which will happen in every marriage. The reaction of my heart is not to be like God and, and to be gracious. The reaction of my heart is to say, how dare you for not recognizing all the great things that I've done for you? And I'm not going to treat you in a sacrificial, loving way, at least for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> now, we laugh at that, but that says pretty serious things about, about me and, and, by extension, about you. Number one is that the central thing that I prize is myself when I behave like that. What's most important to me is, is really my glory. What my wife is, has done, if she is even moderately frustrated with me, it is to commit the heinous offense of depriving me of my glory. And that's profoundly wicked, because if, if God is the center and should be the center of all glory, if he is the one to whom all affection and praise is due, then the fact that I behave like that is, is revealing fundamentally that my life is not oriented towards loving God, and it's not oriented towards glorifying God, but it's fundamentally self-directed. My acts are, are, are there to bring me honor and glory. We're corrupt in nature. Whether we love money, whether we love our own comfort, we're not willing to take risks for God because it will sacrifice that comfort. Uh, whether we um, love our own esteem, fundamentally the orientation of our hearts towards things which are not God reveals that our heart is profoundly sick. And that has consequences. That, that we are not merely in a state of sin, but the misery of that sin is that we are liable to curse and death and finally to the pains of hell forever. That, that there is a penalty that reveals the severity of sin. And that is the eternal conscious torment of being in the presence of God whom we have spurned and whose goodness burns against us in righteous anger. And so therefore, I think that the necessary context for us understanding the riches of grace in God's election, his adoption, his redemption, his forgiveness, is a true and deep understanding of the severity of our sin and where we were heading. So let us look at election, verse 4. Each of these acts, remember, is revealing a God who is by nature gracious. Verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Brothers and sisters, God's sovereign choice over whom to save reveals to us that our salvation ultimately is an act of God's grace. It underlines for us that we are unable to save ourselves. It makes it clear and plain that we had no capacity and no desire to embrace Christ, 
unless God first acted upon us and ordained from eternity past to save us. It is not a hard-nosed and logical doctrine, but it is a doctrine for the comfort of the saints. Know you this, that your assurance of salvation rests not in yourself. It rests not even in your act of faith to lean upon Christ, although that is essential. But fundamentally, your salvation rests upon the God who from eternity past loved you. If you recognize that before God made the sea and the sky, and before he made the birds and the fishes, and, and before he made the stars, and, and, and before that, that gas kind of coalesced to form the, the first stars, before anything existed, God loved you. Before you did anything, whether good or bad, God has loved you. That is your assurance if you are trusting in Christ, that it rests not upon yourself and your own strength because you were evil, but it rests upon the God who has graciously chosen you. Second, he has predestined us for adoption. I was reading recently in um, uh, the, uh, the Selfish Gene uh, by Richard Dawkins that uh, it, you know, he's, he's kind of outlining his, his understanding of evolution. And one of the points that he raises is, is how unnatural uh, adoption is in the natural world. It, it kind of makes no sense. Why would any parent want to invest their time and their energy in looking after an animal that, that doesn't possess their same gene pool? Actually, if there is no kind of natural connection between the father, the parent, and, and the child, then, then really, from that framework, there's, there's not a lot of point. Uh, he talks about a, a certain type of bird that, that actually tricks other birds into looking after its eggs by, by laying them in their nest. And I was thinking, yeah, but what a tragic view of reality. I mean, actually, if you think about it, the, we are, by nature, we're not like God, right? Jesus is eternally God's son. He is by nature like his father. We are by nature children of wrath. We don't, we don't share similarity with God as our heavenly father. We have no right to claim adoption. And in one sense, it makes no sense. that There's nothing that God gains by adopting us. But rather, we gain everything. It's a profoundly unnatural thing, and it only works because God, by his nature, is gracious. He's eternally satisfied in his devotion to his son. There's no lack of fatherly love. For all eternity, he's delighted in his son. And yet, he invites you, in Christ, to partake and to enjoy forever his divine love directed towards his eternal son. Third, God has redeemed us. Verse 7, in him we have, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. Uh, redeem means that God has bought us, he has purchased us, he has, he has bought us back. And, and the reason is because there is a payment that we owe. As we have violated God's law, that there is a payment of death that we deserve. 
and that God in Christ has paid that for us. Now, if you imagine that intrinsically we have got no value, or the value that we have is, is only insofar as we are image bearers of God, and, and we have to face that image by rebelling against him. But yet God has poured on us the infinite value of the blood of his infinitely valuable son. When you go and make transactions, when you buy a house, or when you buy a car, uh, uh, my wife, we've got a baby. My wife has been buying things for the baby, and my wife is like the expert haggler. It, it astonishes me just how successful she is in negotiating the very best deal. Um, that that it's, it's a sense of, you know, must get the best deal because it's like I'm, I'm getting victory over the other person. <laughs> uh, and so there is a natural sense in which we, we don't want to pay a ring it over what the product is worth, right? Unless, unless you like to buy Apple phones, in which your case you're paying several thousand ringgit over what it's worth, but never mind. In general, we don't, we don't like to pay more than what something is worth. But God has bestowed, has bought us with the infinite price of the blood of the person of his son. That is grace. There's infinite value. God has, God has not withheld anything from you. If he gives to you his son, what else is there? How can you not be satisfied with that? And through his son, he has forgiven us. We have transgressed the law of God. In doing so, we have stated that, that God is, is not really valuable to us, that we do not esteem him or his majesty, that, that sin is not a trivial and meaningless act, but it says something fundamental about God, and we are telling God that he does not matter. To forgive for God is profound, because it is declaring something about who he is, because when we sin, we are saying something about him. We are saying that you don't matter. And God cannot wipe that aside. His glory matters to him. And so the fact that we are forgiven, the fact that, that he is able to reconcile us to himself, and the, the fact that he desires to do that, only comes because he is a God who gives to us freely and is by nature a gracious God. So that's the first part. I'm going to do the second part reasonably quickly, so don't worry. God's gracious acts reveal to us a God who is gracious in his nature. And I think in part to understand this, it, it, or to understand it properly, we need to understand who God is or, or perhaps what he is, that there may be a deficiency in our doctrine of God. God is what we would call simple. He has attributes. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, his goodness, and his truth. God has the attributes of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And those attributes he holds as perfections. 
that there is nothing deficient in God's truth. There is nothing deficient in his justice. There is nothing deficient in his holiness. And he holds all of those attributes together as one. In other words, God's holiness doesn't exist in isolation. His holiness is a wise, just, powerful, good holiness. His goodness is a wise, truthful, powerful, just, wise goodness. That, that God is one and indivisible. You can't take him and divide up his attributes. And one of the reasons I say that is because sometimes we might think about how God has been gracious to us as if there's like a conflict and a tension and a competition between his attributes. That on one side he is just and on the other side he is good, gracious and merciful. And that there is a bit of a, of a wrestling with these attributes and, and in the end it is mercy and goodness that wins. And, and justice is, is not expelled, but, but actually that is shown in the death of Christ. But really, it's, it's goodness and mercy that win in the battle. Well, that's not true. God holds all of his attributes in perfection as one. That there, there is no tension or hostility or, 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 um, or, or division in the attributes. He is simple. And he is also unchangeable. He, he is what we would call immutable. Uh, that is that, that God, because he is perfect, can neither grow in his attributes, and he cannot diminish. He can never be less than what he is. And so therefore, he is unchangeable. The reason I, I raise this point is because if, if you think about verse 3, verse 3 says that, God has blessed us. And if we acknowledge that by our nature, we actually deserve God's cursing, that, that because we are damnable by nature, the question is, well, how on earth is God able to change his attitude towards us? God doesn't change in his nature. He doesn't kind of have a change of mind. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of shift his thinking. He's not capricious. I mean, if he was, that would be awful. You'd have no assurance. Because God is gracious to you now, but maybe tomorrow he's not going to be. God has not changed. But what he has done is he has changed his relationship to us. And the way he has done that is by uniting us to Christ. Say that again. God himself cannot and has not changed. So the fact that he blesses us isn't because he's had a change of mind. Rather, what he has done is he has changed his relationship to you and I. And the way he has done that is really he has changed us by ingrafting us, by uniting us to the person of Christ. And that is why we see throughout the passage that every blessing that we have is a blessing that comes only through union with Jesus. So have a look down at, at the passage. We see it in, in verses 1 and, uh, 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 and 2 even, right? That, that the saints are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, we are blessed in Christ. Verse 4, we are chosen in Christ. Uh, that we should be holy and blameless before Christ. That we are predestined for adoption through Christ. Beg, your, beg my pardon. 
that we are blessed in the beloved, uh, that in Christ we have redemption, that, that everything is lavished upon us in Christ, that, that in Christ, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. We have believed in Christ in verse 13. That is that there is no blessing that you can have apart from Christ. And in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. So apart from Christ, you've got nothing. But in Christ, you have everything. And the reason is because God eternally is Trinity. That the Father, in communion with the Holy Spirit, loves the Son from all eternity. The Son is, verse 6, the Beloved. As an eternal person, the Son is the object of God's love. That's never changed. What has changed is that by sending His Son to become incarnate, by sending His Son to take upon our nature, by sending his son that he might shed his blood, verse 7, for us. By sending his son that we might be united to him. By sending his son that he might die the death that we deserve. By sending his son that he might raise that son from the grave and raise him and seat him in his right hand in the heavenly places. By doing all those things and by uniting us to Christ, God is able to communicate to us his blessing that he has ordained from eternity past unto eternity future for the praise of his glory. Isn't it wonderful? If you think about the Trinity, who God is, that this is our God, that he is a personal God, that the, the world is not governed by impersonal forces. It's not random. God has ordained everything from the past to the future to center on Christ, verse 9 and 10, that, that he has made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, the purpose that he set forth in Christ to unite all things in him. And he has done that to demonstrate to us and through us to everyone and everything that he is a gracious God. How can you remain insensible if you leave this room and fundamentally you leave in the same way what is wrong with you you haven't got the right view of reality you're operating under a completely wrong system what I'm saying is you can't just incorporate this into your existent life that Christ is so serious that this is, you're not adding this on. You're not folding him in. You're not introducing just something extra to the way you live. You're completely changing your view of the world. You're completely changing everything you think. You're completely changing who you live for. You're completely changing what you think is the governing principle of the cosmos. And so I want to draw out some of the implications. As we said, the, the, the acts of God, the gracious acts of God, reveal to us a God who is by nature gracious. That we worship God for who he is. Not merely what he has done, but for who he is. This is our God. And there are three things that I want us to see. That one, that, that, that we like, 
like the Westminster Confession, isn't it? Question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That if we acknowledge God's nature, that, that we should enjoy him. That we should also imitate him. That, that if he is good, then we want to be like him. That, that when I'm in my family environment, that I am gracious. We should proclaim his gracious nature. Brothers and sisters, as thinking about as we enjoy him, today is the day that God sets apart one in seven for you in particular to, to think, to meditate, to reflect upon how God has created the world and you and, and how God has saved you and is preserving you until his coming kingdom. If you can't enjoy God with the totality of this day, how are you going to enjoy him with the totality of your life? If you just go and, and, and go to, to Mid Valley and watch a movie, so that your day today is basically the same as every other day, actually it shows that really you don't delight in God maybe. That, that fundamentally you delight in all of the pleasures of this world and Actually, the idea of gathering with God's people and meditating upon what he has done is something that doesn't excite you. I'm not saying that to make you feel particularly guilty about, about how we treat the Sabbath, but I'm, I'm throwing it out there. I found it helpful, actually. I found that the weeks in which I have set apart Sunday, I mean, Sunday is a busy day for me. And those days when I'm able to hold off and say, look, I'm not going to watch YouTube in that spare hour that I've got is helping me to think that today is a day in which God has deliberately set apart it knowing that I'm inclined to love every other rubbish in this world so that I would delight in him and, and it actually prepares me for the rest of the week to, to help me to be reminded I don't need all those things. I don't need those things to be the object of my joy because God is, it, you can be satisfied in him. You can have a perfectly satisfactory day by delighting in God. Two, by imitating God's gracious nature. What we have seen here is we have seen God's supreme governance of the universe, that God has exercised power and authority. And the way he exercises power and authority is grace, which is costly and sacrificial to him. To save us, God has to make the infinite sacrifice, right? He has to sacrifice his eternal son and give him up to death. And there is a pattern there. There is a cross-like pattern for how we behave. I think it's actually essential to everything that Paul says in chapters 4 to 6. That the way we behave in our family life, right? The way husbands treat their wives, the way as parents you treat your children, the way masters that you treat your, your maids... As you exercise your authority, you are doing it in a way that is subversive because, because God doesn't exercise authority and power in crushing you and forcing your submission. God exercises his authority by showing force forth to you sacrifice, love, and grace. So, for example, if you, if you do take the marriage relationship, and you take the idea that there, there is an order there, that the husband is the head of the wife as 
uh, as Christ is the head of the church? Well, we need to do more than just asserting against feminism that there is an order. Right? The church cannot just say we're complementarian, and that means that in opposition to a culture that says that you know, there's no difference between the genders, no difference in marriage, we're going to say that there is a difference. We need to understand what that difference is. The way that authority is exercised, the way that we exercise headship husbands, is patterned upon how God, uh, in Christ, shows forth love, sacrifice, and grace. That is, you're supremely exercising your headship when you are loving your wife in a costly, sacrificial way, not asking your wife to make sacrifices for you. There is a parallel, actually, in chapter 1, right, that, that we are predestined, uh, we're chosen to be holy and blameless before him. It is picked up in chapter 5. I think it's actually really pretty key to understanding what's going on later. The way we treat our children, we do not lord things over them, but, but we, we don't test their patience because we want what's good for us. We love them, we show grace to them. And finally, we enjoy God, we imitate God, and we proclaim God. If we truly love God, if we truly, like Paul, want to, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we truly believe that everything is for the praise of his glory, then we want other people to acknowledge this God, to delight in him. I often find myself, if I'm not evangelizing, it's, it's frequently because I'm just not delighting in God. I mean, I meet people who are really excited about, about telling me how great their iPhone is. They're like iPhone evangelists. It's just, my iPhone's amazing. And, you know, when we're enthusiastic about something, when we think it's good, we tell other people. Um, we're not telling people about God. It's probably because we're not enthusiastic about him. But the other thing is that as we, as we proclaim God's gracious nature, as, as we invite uh, people, as we, as we make known what he has done in Christ, we're also participating in, in God's purpose for history. That his purpose for history is the church is really pretty essential to it. That as God has shown grace to the church, it is through showing that grace that he has magnified his glory to all the world. It's, it's rather like if you get a beam of pure light and you pass it through a prism. Right? The, the light itself is, doesn't lose anything through the prism. But as it passes through, it, it's revealed in, in splendor in a way that wasn't seen before. That there's actually through the church we see something about God, his, his wonderful, bountiful munificence. We want other people, as other people are included from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, we are saying we are participating in what is truly glorious. The church is, is going to stand to the next age as the monument to God's glory. And as men, women, young, old, intelligent, not so intelligent, uh, rich, poor, people from every language, people from every race, people from every religion, as they are gathered before God, 
his grace will be proclaimed and his wisdom and his power will be made known to the rulers and the authorities, to all creation. And we will exalt and glorify God who has shown grace to us. Brothers and sisters, that know that in history, God has ordained past to the future to demonstrate his grace, that he is by nature a God of grace, that his grace is demonstrated in Christ. In him you have everything. Enjoy him. Imitate what he is like and proclaim him that more and more may know of his bountiful grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, we pray that having heard your word and of your blessings towards us in Christ, that you may give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that we might know Christ, and that opening the eyes of our hearts and in enlightening them, we might know the wonderful blessings that you have given to us in him. We pray in the hardness of our hearts and the blindness that we struggle in. We pray that you would be gracious to us as you have been in Christ, that we would not merely be blessed, but we would know your blessings, that our lives would be changed by the knowledge of your blessings in Christ. And we pray that as we have learnt of your acts and as we know what you have done, that we would rejoice in your nature, in who you are, as a God of wonderful, astounding, rich, unparalleled and infinite grace. Grace that is shown to us primarily not in things, but in the person of your Son. We pray that you give us grace to enjoy you, to imitate you and to proclaim you to the praise of that glorious grace. Amen.